Let's open our Bibles to James chapter 4. As we get into God's Word, I'm very excited, Andrea. The readings from James chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit, whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It's even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. This is God's word. We've been in a study of James on Sunday mornings, and we've titled the whole series Real Faith. Because what James is driving at is what fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ look like, the decisions they make, as opposed to those who have just a nominal faith, those who were raised in a faith, those who were kind of going through the motion. So it's kind of a, a line in the sand. And today I want to talk about how real faith plans ahead. We're going to use this verse in James. We're going to look at some Proverbs. And I have to admit to you, this is one of the days where I love what I do. I really do. Because this is a sweet spot of mine. This is something I've been processing for 35 years. I do it uh, each and every year between Christmas and New Year's. As we close the book on one year and open the book on another, I try and look at what went right and wrong in 2017. And then I want to see what God has for me in 2018. The beautiful thing about our culture is that this new year is like a, a vital optimism for a lot of people, right? We can have a new start and new beginning. There's resolutions. I know most people don't follow through, but it is a line in the sand. So I'm excited to distill 35 years of Bible knowledge and walking with God and trying to help 2018 be the best year it can be for not only our church, but for everyone here who's gathered. Now, my title is Real Faith Plans Ahead. Now, because Christians are both stubborn and hypersensitive spiritually, nobody at Calvary, Christians in Texas kind of lean that way, uh, I want to give you my three points, okay? So, Because I know some of you want to turn me off already. Uh, number one, I, I'm going to convince you with all my heart that planning and being strategic is biblical. Uh, the second thing I'm going to talk about is though goals are good, they're not God. And then finally, I want you to define your wig for 2018. You might be saying, what in the world is a wig? It's a wildly important goal, and we'll get to that at the end of the message. But I want to start, is planning biblical? Is it something God wants us to do? Or because we're spiritual, is that something we put aside? Uh, there's a book in the Bible called Proverbs. It's a book of wisdom. It's not as much theological as it is practical. It's generally the way life should go. The Hebrews prized wisdom above everything because it was the skill in living life. Now, it's not self-help. It begins by saying the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. In other words, someone who walks with God and puts these things into practice, generally life will go well for them. Here's a synopsis of the whole book. That action-oriented, diligent, disciplined individuals who practice thrift, prudence, delayed gratifications, and look ahead will generally outperform what Proverbs calls the sluggard or the lazy man. Now, we're not here on Sunday morning to put labels on people, but sometimes you got to wear a label, right? 
That's what repentance is, to acknowledge where you are and go another way. Sometimes you have to say, hey, I'm Bob. I've been a sluggard in a certain area, and I want to see God bring change. Proverbs basically says there's two types of people, those who are letting things happen and those who are making things happen, and we fall, fall somewhere on that continuum of those two different things. So I want to kind of convince you that looking ahead and planning uh, is very prudent. Now, again, this is generally the way life should go. Uh, it's not 100%, right? There are outliers, like the Kardashians, right? Or trust fund babies, or people that hit the Powerball lotto, or professional gamblers, right? There's outliers to this. We're not to emulate that, right? We're not basing life on the Powerball lottery. In fact, the Bible says that's foolish. But generally, what does wisdom teach us um, and what does Proverbs have to say? I want to put on the screen my favorite proverb, written by Solomon. Solomon was the king in Israel, and one day he's walking around Jerusalem, and he said, I passed by the field of the lazy man, the sluggard, and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense, the man devoid of wisdom. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles, its surface was covered with nettles, and the stone wall was broken down. When I saw it, I reflected upon it, I looked, and Solomon said it preached to him. He re received instruction. And then here's the verses you already knew. A little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Surely your poverty will come on you as a robber, and your want like an armed man. Charles Swindoll said sluggards come in all shapes, sizes, and denominations. Despite whatever creed they may claim, laziness is the only real on-the-job doctrine they vigorously practice. Each day they repeat the complainer's liturgy, which goes something like this. What time is it? It's not my job. What time is it? I don't get paid enough to do this. What time is it? Is it 5 o'clock already? Why would Solomon, the king in Israel, who is so busy and has so much time, be so moved by this field that was overgrown? And the answer is potential. Because Solomon was a man of wisdom, because Solomon was a man who understood the workings of God. If you would see a field that was fertile in Jerusalem, which is mostly rocky soil, and you saw it overgrown, you knew somewhere someone dropped the ball. There was dropped potential. Because a field like this could produce, not only for a family, but for other families. There could be a business opportunity here. Uh, the sky was the limit to what could be done with this field. Now, here's what the Bible says about you and me. We are God's field. We are God's workers. God has given everyone in this room a field. He's given us all the resources to work that field, all the gifts and the talents to make something wonderful of this life and to bless other people. And here's the one takeaway I can give you this morning, and you probably already figured it out. God's not going to do it for you. Anyone figure that one out? See, that's the over-spiritual side. Well, if God wants it to happen, it will happen. And that's why you're stuck. That's why it's not happening. I'll give you a parent-child illustration, and that's why we're parents, because it's the greatest illustration of our relationship with God. I will make a lunch for my five-year-old. I will not make lunch for my 25-year-old. Does that make any sense? When I was a brand new Christian, I was amazed at how God answered prayer. I could tell you stories of God filling our house with food and checks coming in the mail. 
and all kinds of answers to prayer that were almost instantaneously. And then they slowed down. And then they slowed down a little more. And then sometimes God was silent. Why? Because God wants us to grow. God wants us to begin to act. Uh, they, the, Israel was only supposed to be in the wilderness for 11 days. It turned into a 40-year journey. So God, by his grace, gives them manna. But when they came into the promised land, the manna stopped. And now they would have to plant and harvest their fields, and they would have to build homes. So God's not going to do it for us. God has given us a brain. He's given us talents. And God wants us to work our field, and that's what brings joy to him. When God looks down and sees us putting our hand to the plow and, and, and um, kind of being in sync with him, I think it gives him great joy. So I've distilled Proverbs to about six verses to help you in this. They're on your sheet that we handed out. Uh, you can look at them later. Let me read them for you. Uh, the first proverb that I selected, chapter 15, says, Plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. Proverbs 16.3, commit to the Lord whatever you do and he will establish your plans. Proverbs 16.9, a man's heart plans his way but the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 21.5, the plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty. By the way, that word diligence can be translated strategic. People that are strategic surely leads to plenty. But those to everyone who is hasty, those who think they're going to hit the Powerball lotto, uh, surely come to poverty. And then finally, Proverbs 16.33 is one of my favorites. The lot is cast into the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Now, just from those Proverbs, we can see that planning ahead and goal setting is biblical. Now, you remember Jesus, when he was talking about the cost of discipleship, said there's no man, you know, no, no leader of an army who's going to go fight 20,000 with 10,000. In other words, God gave us a brain and we can be strategic. Now, if you're convinced planning and being strategic and goal setting is biblical, here's the million dollar question. Why don't we do it? And I can tell you why we don't do it, because I don't do it enough, okay? I know the roadblocks, and they're the same roadblocks as yours. So let's go through some of the roadblocks and maybe we can get rid of these. The first one is inertia. Now, inertia is a scientific term and what it means is it's so hard to get started. A body at rest stays at rest. Now that's what you feel when you get up in the morning, right? A body at rest wants to stay at rest, okay? Uh, in your holiday leth lethargy, is that a word? Lethargic, whatever. That's how you feel probably right now. You want to stay at rest. You don't want to go back to work Tuesday. But this is what we're facing. It, it kind of works like this. You come to church, you read your Bible, you're excited about what God's doing, Maybe he's deposited a vision in your heart or something you want to do in 2018, and you're all gung-ho until Monday comes. Then everything but the kitchen sink is thrown at you. And then there's Tuesday and Wednesday, and by Friday, you don't even know what the word vision means anymore. Uh, I've heard two phrases in my life that really sum this up well. Uh, trying to do what God has called us to do uh, in the world is like pushing an elephant up the stairs. Is that a good imagery? Right? Just really hard and difficult. The other is it's like swimming through peanut butter. There's just these days where I just can't even get moving. There's so much inertia. Life can be brutal at times. I had a woman come to me and say, Pastor Bob, I love everything you're doing here, and I'd so love to be involved. She goes, but I'm going to lay my cards on the table. I work 40 hours a week. I have a long commute. It's enough for me to go to work. I watch TV at night. 
do a few chores on the weekend, go to church, and that's about all the energy I have. And I said to her, I said, the first thing you need to do is give yourself a break. Really, call a timeout, give yourself a break. You know, God's not Pharaoh. He's not making you work seven days. I said, but the other thing is you can pray small prayers. Like, Lord, give me strength. I think God will answer that prayer. Lord, give me strength to just do a couple things that I would love to do. You see, the first step's the most important step. It's the one we never take. It's why we never get where we want to go. It's why most of us are stuck. Proverbs 6, 9 says, how long will you lie down, O sluggard? In other words, how long will you stay at rest and not begin to step out and got what God has for you? Now, this is the big trick about a new year goal setting and really focusing on what God has for us. So many people are going to say, you know what? I'm going to draw a line in the sand and I'm going to try really hard at X, Y, Z this year. And I'm going to tell you right now, you're going to fail. If you listen to me preach long enough, you've heard me talk about trying versus training. Trying doesn't work. In fact, trying sounds noble, right? We'll give it the old college try. The problem is there's no responsibility in trying because if I try and it doesn't work, what's the answer? Well, I tried. I tried. Something must have gone wrong. No, the Bible says we can train ourselves. Paul says we can put off the old and put off the new. There's action involved. We are meant to be action-oriented. Uh, last year, John Maxwell was one of the speakers at our men's retreat via video, and his one phrase stuck in my mind all year. He said, action is what turns dreams into significance. Now look up on the screen, this is from John's book. Words matter a lot, we use words all the time. And he has the words of good intention and the words of intentional living and the results it produces. Let's all be honest, how many of us say we have all these desires, but we never put them into action, we never get results? We all wish someday there's a fantasy that we'll hopefully do occasionally, etc., etc., etc. And at the end of the day, you got to take that step. You have to have an action plan. You have to be strategic. The last time I checked, the word disciple is a disciplined follower of Jesus Christ. Discipline is actually in the word that defines us. So inertia is the first thing we have to overcome. The second thing we have to overcome, and again, this isn't everyone, is busyness. Now, we are a very busy culture. Uh, the generation that's being raised is the busiest there's ever been, uh, people are telling us. Uh, we actually went to a real Amish house for dinner. Pastor Bob Banks knows this woman. She's Amish. Her husband died, and the elders of the community actually let her serve people dinner. That's how she makes a living. Uh, so several of us went there for dinner, and uh, I think it was my wife who started the conversation and said, what do you guys struggle with the most in the Amish community? You ready for their answer? Technology. And we're like, like, are you kidding? She said, oh no, you know, the elders passed this rule where for business purposes, we can have a flip phone, but you can only use it in the barn. And that's unearthing all kinds of problems. We have to learn how to deal with technology. And then they said, uh, what's your biggest struggle? And we said, uh, technology. Yeah. You're trying to just do it a couple, 20 minutes or so. Uh, we're trying to stay off it for 20 minutes or so. 
We're a busy people. Here's the problem with busyness. Some people take it as a badge of honor. Do you know why? Because if you're busy, you must be powerful and important. I hate when people come to me and they say, Pastor Bob, I'd love to meet you or have a cup of coffee, but I know how busy you are. And I'm like, I'm not any busier than you are. Uh, in fact, I'm here every Sunday and most Wednesdays and most days of the week. I'll meet with you at a Starbucks anywhere you want to meet. I am not that busy. We all have things God has called us to do. Busyness cannot be an excuse. If we're going to achieve what God wants us to achieve, we're going to have to cut busyness down. Can't cut it out. We have to cut it down. The word decide, the etymology of the word decide, comes. it's the same as homicide, suicide, patricide. The root means to cut off. To decide requires a death, a dying to a thousand other options, the putting aside of a legion of possibilities in order to focus on the few. Does that resonate with anyone? In other words, if you're going to ever do anything great or anything God's called you to do, you're going to have to say no to good things. Now, believe it or not, at church, this is what we practice. Uh, there's not a week that goes by where people don't tell us the mission we should support, the mission we should go on, and the 300 ministries we should start by the end of the year. Now, we love when you guys tell us that. It's noble. It's wonderful. And a lot of those things that folks have brought to us, we have started. But here's what we live by, and this might help you. And we don't get it right all the time. Uh, we'll put the quote on the screen. There will always be more good ideas than the capacity to execute them. There will be, always be more good ideas than we or you have the capacity to execute. We can't do everything. In fact, for everything we start, we've got to end something. Years ago, our probably premier event was what we called the Harvest Carnival on Halloween. I mean, we did it for 15 years. We did it fabulously. I loved it. Uh, we had to cut it off for a season. We haven't done it in a long, long time because God had put other things on our plate. So if busyness is your problem, you got to decide what to cut out and declutter your life. Some of the books I would recommend in this area are Bill Hybels' Simplify, Gordon McDonald's Ordering Your Private World, and Gordon McDonald's The Resilient Life. The third thing that stops us is neglect. You know, a lot of us probably have portions of our life on autopilot, and that's a problem. And then the fourth one grates me to no end. And this, this, is, this is tough, guys. The fourth reason why we don't plan ahead and be strategic is because we think it's unspiritual. We think we're Christians, and if we plan and goal set, that it's self-help. And in fact, people will quote this very verse in James where it says, James will say, you shouldn't go to such and such a city and say, we'll do this and that. That's not what James says. James says, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will do this, that, and the other. Now, if you've been with us in our study in James, James is talking to two different type of people, those with nominal faith and those with real faith. So sometimes he'll call people brethren and sometimes he'll call them double-minded or something else. Look at chapter five, verse one. He says, come now you rich, weep and howl for your miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches are corrupted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver are corroded. You have lived on the earth in luxury. You have fattened your hearts for the day of slaughter. Now he can't be talking to true believers 
Because the Bible has no prohibition on wealth, nowhere. Joseph of Arimathea, who buried Jesus, was rich. Abraham was rich. Solomon was rich. In fact, the one thing the Bible says in the New Testament to the rich is that they shouldn't trust in uncertain riches and they should be generous. That's about what it says, okay? So who's James talking to? He's talking to people who claim they have a relationship with God, claim they have a relationship with Jesus Christ, and then when it comes to the important decisions of life, they never factor God in the equation. They say, come let us build a city, come let us set goals. All their decisions are practical, whimsical, financial, and pleasure-based, and God is never in the equation. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe James is talking to you. So here's what he says. He's not condemning you. He's going to ask you a question that is worth pondering. He says, what is your life? You know, what is life really? For those of you who are, who are going for the gusto and climbing the ladder of success, James says, look, what is your life? And then he tells us, it's a vapor. I'll give you an illustration. That's your life. On the long arc of history, that's how long you're here. Job said, my days are swifter than a runner. They're but a mere shadow. The Bible says you are a flower quickly fading. You have appeared and you'll be gone. You're like grass that goes into the oven. And it's only common sense, guys. You know, no matter what we achieve, Jesus said you gain the whole world and lose your own soul. We're only here that quick. It's very fast. And what he says is, God's people say, but if the Lord wills. See, the will of man is to stay alive. Even though life's short, that's their whole goal. How long can I live? A Christian says, how can I walk in the will of God? And guess what? God's will may be you're only here for 30 years. Maybe you're here for 100 years. I don't know. But for a Christian, it's always, what is the will of God? I know in my life, well, you know, that's all I want to know is what is God's will every single day and year for me? Warren Wearsby said, if the Lord's will is not just a statement on believers' lips, if it's real faith, but it's an attitude of the heart. It's something we're always asking. Jesus said, my food, his very sustenance, was to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. At the most difficult time of that intersection of his will and God's will in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Lord, not my will, but thine be done. Paul talked about God's will for his life in Romans 1, Romans 15, 1 Corinthians 4, 1 Corinthians 16 met with a pastor recently who was struggling. And he said, Pastor Bob, with all the complications of pastoral ministry, all the betrayal, all the criticism, all the moving parts, all the pain, all the suffering, he said, how do you keep going? And I said, well, we could talk a long time about that, but I said, at the end of the day, here's what we would get to. This is God's will for my life. This is really what I've been called to do, and as long as he's called me to do it, I'm gonna walk in it. So here's the question. If we're going to ask what if the Lord wills, here's my the million dollar question, what's the Lord's will for your life? I think most of you know it's not as easy to discern as we think. If you can bring those proverbs back on the screen, I'm going to highlight two. A man's heart plans his way, we're strategic, but it's the Lord who's directing our steps. And then the lot is cast in the lap, into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. So 
Lots were straws. Uh, you would draw straws. Remember Jonah when he was on the ship, they drew straws. I mean, very common in the Bible. Uh, lots today would be like flipping a coin, right? So you flip a coin, it's heads or tails, right? So there's a billion-dollar industry called the NFL, and they're going to play today to determine who's going to make the playoffs and who's going to make a boatload of money. And guess what they can't figure out? All these lawyers and all these people on Park Avenue, they can't figure out who gets the ball first. They, they just can't. So they flip a coin. The referee will go out, and they will start this billion-dollar industry with a coin flip. Lots, coins. You might say, oh, my gosh. This sounds like games of chance. Why would the Bible talk about this? Because it's telling us God's even in the smallest decisions. And what it's telling us, and it's very important, is that God gave us brains, God gave us gifts, he put desires in our hearts. There's a way we're wired. Some of you are tech technical, some of you are engineers, some of you love to work with numbers, some of you are artists. So those dreams and desires are all there. And so we must plan our way but at the end of the day, we've got to believe that God's right in the middle of this. Now think this through with me. Now, when I graduated high school, I had eight bona fide offers to play college basketball. And out of that whole list, I whittled it down and I went to Widener where I became an All-American, so I played a lot, uh, became a Christian, and met my wife. Sounds like that was God's will, don't you think? Now, here's the million-dollar question. What if I had gone to American University, which was high on my list? Would that have been God's will? Well, we'll never know because I never did. And then if I had gone there, that would have been God's will somehow, some way. Here's what I'm trying to say. There is a paradox to all of this, but the paradox is really cool. Because if we believe God controlled everything and we were puppets on a string, we'd be paralyzed. We wouldn't do anything. We wouldn't make any choices. But because we're free, we know we have to decide and step out. If we were only free, this deal called life would be the scariest thing in the world. To believe that I am charting my own course scares me to death. And so God has created this system where we plan our way, and as we plan our way, we walk smack into his will as long as we have him in the center of our plans. Does that make sense? You see, goals are good, they're not God. We've gotta set them, we've gotta plan, but we have to realize all the while, God can redirect. We have a 2020 vision here at church where we planned and prayed about strategic things we wanted to do by 2020, and by God's grace, we've completed some and there's still some to go. But you know what our chief prayer is? Lord, change this anytime you want. Because we have no interest in going in our way. We want to ride the wave you have for us. But again, we just can't sit here and do nothing. One of the great Bible stories that bears this out, there's actually a couple, but this is probably the best, is the story of Joseph. Joseph, as you know, was the favorite of Jacob. And not only was he Jacob's favorite son, he has a dream about how all his brothers are going to bow down to him. you imagine if God let that happen, how dysfunctional that family would have turned out? Dad would have been hated all by the brothers. Joseph would have been hated all by the brothers, walk around with a big head. I mean, it would have been a disaster. So what happens? His brothers sell him into slavery, throw him into a pit. 
He rises in Potiphar's house only to be lied about and thrown into prison. He's sitting in a prison thinking, oh my gosh, I've had this dream that I'm going to be amazing. And God's not answering any prayers. Finally, he becomes prime minister in Egypt. His brothers come. He saves Israel from famine. He saves the known world from famine. And finally, when his brothers meet him and confess, he said, look, what you meant for evil, God always meant for good. In other words, this was the plan, and God had another plan, okay? Uh, Nehemiah is another classic example. He hears about the destruction of Jerusalem, how it's in ruins. He knows that's not God's plan. First thing he does, he weeps. Second thing he does, he prays. Third thing he does, he confesses his sins and the sins of the nation. And then he gets action-oriented. He goes to the king. King says, what do you want? He said, I want papers. I want to go back to Jerusalem, send papers to all these people. He builds a force. He goes back, read the first three chapters of Nehemiah. They rebuild the wall in record time. They were strategic and God was in it and it was the will of God. The beauty is we get to walk through it with God. Let me tell you a truth that took me a long time to learn. God is not going to give you his will for your life in a box with a bow on it as much as you're going to walk it out. And that's where faith comes in. That's real faith. And I've been doing that for 35 years, and i got to tell you, it's scary. Uh, I thought God's will was that I'd pastor a church. So we started this church, and i got to tell you, when I drove here the first day, I had a 1,000 voices of opposition in my mind. And then when the church grew a little bit and I had to leave, leave my corporate job, I had a 1,000 voices of opposition. And then finally you get to a point where you just walk in and you say, okay, this is God's will. And I understand what Paul was like when he said, Paul, called to be an apostle, called to be a missionary. We're all walking out what God has for us, and it's a beautiful thing. Uh, again, think about Paul. Paul has these orders, go into all the world and preach the gospel. So he decides to go to Asia. Right in the middle of that trip, he sees a dream of a man from Macedonia saying, Paul, come here. And he diverts and goes to Greece, and the Western civilization tells the rest of the story. So again, man plans his way, God redirects, we've got to set goals, they're not God. We have to be open and say, if the Lord wills, we'll redirect. So every year between Christmas and New Year's, I look back, Look at how life went. Look at the new year. This is what I feel like God has for me. We do it for the church, which is going to lead to my final point. What is your wig for 2018? Now, sit back for just a moment. Some of you corporate types know what this is. Wigs are wildly important goals. There's a business book that was written. I still think it's the best book ever written called Execution. The Covey Group thought it was really good. It, it was so good, they dissected it, and they wrote a book called The Four Disciplines of Execution. Now, don't worry about all this. I'm going to make a point in a minute. Uh, I was able to hear one of the Covey guys give this talk, and I leaned over to a staff member and said, look, I have no time to get into this. But I know if somebody got into this, this is the best tool out there. So that staff member went home, read the book, put together a, a system, and uh, all our departments here at church picked wigs this year, wildly important goals. Now, wigs don't replace your normal job. 
This is you do everything you're already doing, but then you select what's one wild, if we could get to one thing and accomplish it, what would it be? So can I tell you the results of wigs this year for us? We put out a Christmas album. Uh, normally we could say with all we do in worship and services, we wouldn't have time for that, but we put a Christmas album out and then the other big thing we did is we had a brand new website and then we achieved some things on sub-ministry sub levels. Now, let me explain another part of a wig and this is what intrigued us. You just can't try to put out a Christmas album, okay? Just like you can't try to lose weight or anything else God's gonna put on your heart. Uh, the learning for us was there's a thing called lead and lag measures and a compelling scoreboard. Uh, a lead measure is something you need to accomplish in order to get to the wildly important goal. So we knew if we were gonna do an album, we needed a studio. Now, we have a studio that we built, but it had nothing in it. It was basically a broom closet because it was just, we didn't have time. So a lot of people would say, well, we have a goal to build a studio. No, the goal was an album. So the first thing we had to do was attack a lead measure and build a studio, which we did. And then we needed a compelling scoreboard. This had to be done by December 1st. A uh, compelling scoreboard for weight loss is a scale. <laughs> you gotta get on a scale. Diet and exercise doesn't work unless you know how many calories you're bringing in or burning, right? Like, this is how it works. Uh, John Kennedy said in the 60s, we're gonna put a man on the moon by the end of the decade, and guess what we did? Compelling scoreboard for us was December 1st. So I'm a believer in wigs. I believe every Christian should have a spiritual goal. Spiritual goals are difficult because you know, we're, we're trying to grow closer to God. But maybe a spiritual goal could be, I've never really understood the plight of the poor. I've never understood what it's like to do ministry in the inner city or a third world country. I don't really know what spiritual disciplines are. Some of you don't know what Bible reading or prayer is. Everybody should have financial goals. We run Financial Peace University here, and we'll run it in March, because we've helped over 500 people in this area. Uh, I've said it before, if you have $50,000 in debt, it's gonna drag you down spiritually. It just will. So getting out of debt and being more generous should always be a financial goal. We should have health goals. Uh, goals for our work or whatever God's called us to do. But I want to leave you with this. What if an overall wildly important goal for our church and every individual was to lead one person to Christ this year? Now, this isn't something I made up this week. This has been burning on my heart for a while. For about a year and a half now, I've realized that we need to get evangelism to the front burner of our church. That's why we're doing Christianity Explored. Now, some of you are saying, well, Pastor Bob, that's ridiculous because that's a spiritual thing. God saves people. And, you know, unless God gets in there and gives them faith, they can't get, I, I get all that. Can I give you something a little counterintuitive? Jesus looked at the fields and said, uh, the problem's not the harvest. There's so many lost people to go around. Don't even think that's the problem. He said the laborers were the problem. Why? They're few. 
Very few. And then he told another parable about a man who threw seed on soil, right? Four different kinds of soil. And then only the good ground produced fruit. So anybody that does logic would say, hey, let's cast more seed. That's a great idea. If seed's going to fall everywhere and only certain ones are going to produce, why don't we just cast more seed? If your wildly important goal was to lead someone to Christ this year, guess what your lead measure would have to be? Strategically get around lost people. Strategically get around and actually care about lost people. And then you have things like Christianity Explored and Sizzling Summer and our services. You know, there's some things we offer. There's things you can do outside of here. Um, where you could take opportunity. You're probably thinking, well, Pastor Bob, the only reason why you want that to be a wig is because you want to grow your church. That's the last thing I want to do. Here's what I know. You lead one person to Christ, you'll never be the same. Never, ever, ever be the same. You walk through that process and see someone come to faith, it will recharge you in a way you have never seen in all your life. And I'm putting myself in your boat, right? I work in a place with all Christians, right? Here at church. Everybody's a Christian. I can't, there's nobody I can evangelize here. So I gotta figure something out, right? That's why I don't play in a Christian basketball league, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But outside of that one wig, you have about a week or so, 12 hours, <laughs> to say, what is my wildly important goal? If you don't find one, you won't achieve it. If you have no goals for 2018, you will achieve them. You'll do nothing. And you'll let life happen instead of making it happen. And let me say this. No matter what your goal is, the evil one will not relent. Jesus said there's enough trouble for today. Trouble's coming in 2018. That's the one guarantee we have. Right? Sickness, disease, death is not taking a break in 2018 as long as there's an evil one. He comes to steal, to kill, and destroy. Jesus said, greater is he who's in us. And history has already told us that we can have influence and change the world around us. We're told to be in the world and not of it. But if you don't have goals, you won't achieve them. And if you have them, God can do great things. I want to close with this, just so there's no ambiguity. Um, we've had a pretty cool year as far as our family. Uh, my oldest daughter was the commencement speaker at a university at 32 years old, which is like shocking. Um, one of my daughters has uh, songs on trailers on TV. You know, I, was, I was down in Sandy Cove doing a retreat and went in to watch Monday Night Football and one of her songs came on. I was like, oh my gosh. Um, my son preached a few weeks ago, and people have come up to me, you must be so proud, you must be so proud. And my daughter played on Christmas Eve, and people were saying, you must be so proud, you must be so proud. And I stopped myself and say, wow, am I proud? I'm not sure. But then I realized something about God. And again, the child-parent relationship works. One of my kids, and to protect them all, because they're probably all here, so you won't know who it is. Um, one of my kids said, you know, I bought gift cards 
for all the baristas of all the coffee shops I work in during the year. That made me proud. That made me proud. Not any achievement. That made me proud because it showed care and concern for people that serve and, and it values people across the spectrum and it challenged my own heart. And in some ways, I think that's the heart of God. God's not so much worried about what you do and what you achieve, but who you are. And who you are is his will, and its will will get you to be the person he wants you to be in 2018.